0: Jesus is better than Jesus is better than Jesus is better. Amen. Jesus is better. We are going through this series through the book of Hebrews called Greater than, and we have been seeing each week that Jesus really is uh, greater than, than all. And so uh, as we look at Hebrews chapter 9 today, I want to begin with an unusual uh, illustration from my own personal life. Uh, let me start by telling you about my lawnmower. By lawnmower. Um, this past week, my lawnmower finally died. It was a 42 inch craftsman riding mower. It has served me uh, very well over the years. But after a few uh, hours with my father in law deep into the engine, taking the flywheel apart, uh, we finally decided that it was clear it was time for a funeral. Uh, it was a frustrating uh, experience, and uh, there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth when a when a good friend, like a riding mower, uh, is no longer there for you anymore. But but my my mourning was soon turned into rejoicing as I as I began to look at an upgrade. As I've been looking around in these last few days, I have been seeing something I've been wanting for a very long time. Two words: John Deere. <laughs> Maybe even with a leaf catcher uh, attachment on the back. That's what I'm talking about. I haven't bought it yet, but uh, I'm just looking around and my morning is being turned to dancing as I consider this new upgrade in my life. I share that kind of silly story with you this morning because I want to remind you uh, that the author of the book of Hebrews has been working very, very hard in these past eight chapters to deny a certain premise throughout the book of Hebrews. And the premise is this, the first things are always the best things. Uh, The first things are always the best things? See, the audience had a misunderstanding, and they they thought that the first things were always the most complete things, that the first things were always the most perfect things. Now, the first things may be the best things in certain areas of life, like car racing, uh, but despite what Ricky Bobby says in Talladega Nights, that logic doesn't always hold up, does it? Uh, let me just ask you, uh, your first paycheck was your biggest paycheck. Your first job was your best job. Your first game of golf was your best game of golf. Your, your first sermon was your best sermon. Your, your first iPhone was your best iPhone. You see, the writer to the book of Hebrews has been telling us again and again and again that the first things are actually not always the best things. Let me just remind you of this principle by way of example. You'll recall with me about the first revelation. He told us in Hebrews chapter 1 that in the past uh, God had spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. So you see that there was a first revelation and that god spoke through the prophets but yet now that revelation was not yet complete and we realized there was a need for a second revelation but the author also continues as he taught us about the first mediator moses who led the children out of israel uh, out of egypt into the promised land toward a, toward a a land of rest, but the writer to the Hebrews has told us uh, there's actually a true and greater uh, mediator and a true and greater rest available for the people of God. So there was a first mediator and then a second mediator. But the author to the Hebrews uh, was not finished there. We also learned that there was a first priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, Uh, This priesthood, he told us in chapter 7, was not able to bring about completeness, and it was superseded by a second priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so there's a first priesthood and a second uh, priesthood. And then last week, James Rickershauser did a fantastic job explaining to us about the first covenant. Uh, the first covenant. You'll recall that there was a first and a second covenant. There was the first covenant, the covenant of law, that was superseded by the new covenant, the covenant of grace. The law could only uh, affect the external, but yet the new covenant would work on the internal, the human heart. And the law could not be kept uh, because of the sinfulness of mankind, but the new covenant would be entirely a work of God Himself. And so there's an old covenant and a a new covenant, and we've seen that there's an old revelation and a new revelation, an old mediator and a new mediator and an old priesthood and a new priesthood, but that's not all. Today as we open up Hebrews chapter 9, we we turn really to what is the climax of the, the writer's argument as he further develops the supremacy of Christ in all things in the message that I've just simply entitled, The Culmination of the Ages, a term taken from Hebrews 9 Itself, and you'll see three parts to the message today. We'll see, first of all, the first and second sanctuary, and then we'll see the first and second sacrifice, and then we'll see the first and second coming. Today, I think uh, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that we're about to look at some of the most beautiful words in the scriptures. They're especially relevant to us. This is not just abstract theology, ladies and gentlemen. If you are struggling today, with, say, for example, uh, motivation to pray, uh, listen very carefully to this exposition. Or if you're struggling today in your own conscience and something is bothering you, uh, a reminder about your own sin, please listen to this message today. Or if you're struggling just to be reminded of the supremacy of Christ and you need a good reminder of the core gospel message, please listen to this message today, for there is power in these words. This is God's inspired text and this message is for you. Uh, Before we dive into Hebrews 9, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we pause for a moment just to bow before you, for this is your word. Thank you for preserving this text so that we might learn and grow today. But Lord, unless you open our eyes and hearts, our work here would be all for nothing. And so we ask you to do what only you can do, open up our Eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Uh, We pray that the words of this this preacher's mouth uh, would be acceptable to you and the meditations of all of our hearts uh, would be right in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray, Amen. If you're ready for the word, say amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 begins like this The writer says, Now the first covenant. Had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Now, God had given the Israelites very specific instructions about how to construct this tabernacle. This is very important for you to know. So listen carefully. I know sometimes facts about the Old Testament are actually hard to learn about, but you really must know this. The whole Bible begins to fit together when you understand this picture right here. Uh, You'll remember there was basically three different sections of the tabernacle, like concentric circles. There was the outer court, and then there was the holy place and the most holy place as we drew nearer to the presence of God. The first room inside he calls the holy place. It contains certain furnishings. The first, he says, is the lampstand, a menorah, uh, seven branches of a candlestand that were to never go out, Exodus 27, symbolizing God's revelation of himself and his illuminating uh, presence. The second piece of furniture here was the table of consecrated bread, a symbol of mankind's fellowship with God that the priest would continually restore this bread every single week. The author will also point our attention to the altar of incense. He mentions that in verse 3. Let me turn there with you. It says, Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The golden altar of incense was right in front of the veil in in the holy place, symbolizing the prayers of God's people going up towards God's presence. And here he describes the most important room in the tabernacle called the Most Holy Place, or the the Holy of Holies. Behind the curtain was the most important piece of furniture in here. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. This was simply a rectangular box made of acacia wood, but overlaid over top with pure gold. It was the place where God's presence and his Shekinah glory dwelled. The room, as you see, was behind a curtain, behind a veil. There was a barrier. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a conflict brewing in a relationship and you just sense that things aren't right between you and that other person? And you ask them, are we good? Like, are we okay? Now, now, what do you think, ladies and gentlemen, this veil was signifying to the people of God about our relationship with him? The veil was communicating that things are not okay. Okay. I know this is not a popular message in our affirming culture, but the story of the Bible is that every human being is estranged from God because of our sin. And when we approach God and ask, are we okay, the presence of this veil in the tabernacle answers back saying, no, we are not okay. We are not good. God says to each of us, your relationship with me is broken. It is broken because your sins have caused this separation between you and me. I am a holy God. And through your own merits, furthermore, you cannot do anything to breach this divide. Friends, the whole point of the tabernacle system of worship was on the one hand to show God's intent to have fellowship with his people. Contrastingly, on the other hand, it also showed us that the way for this fellowship was not yet open. Commentator Richard Phillips says it well. Quote, "The veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot dwell together." The tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths. First, God called man to come and worship and serve him. Second, he must not come too close. He must be kept at a distance. I remember when I was a young boy, when I first saw the movie Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody remember that film from the early 80s? A couple of us here today. Yeah, classic Harrison Ford, the archeologists are searching around for the lost ark of the covenant and then finally at the end of the film they find it. They find it and uh, this thing is so powerful. The people open it up and uh, it ends up killing everybody that was looking for it and their eyes melt out of their sockets and As like a six-year-old boy, this was like really disturbing for me to be watching on the big screen. I don't know why my parents allowed me to see this movie at that time. A little lacking in parental discernment, perhaps. Nobody's perfect. None of us parents are perfect either. Anyway, the movie kind of scarred me as a little boy. uh, But it did make the point that the Bible, I think, is making here quite well. Uh, Namely, that you cannot just simply charge into God's presence. Access is denied. Now, what's inside of this ark? Well, the the Hebrew writer says in verse 4, this ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. Now, what I want you to just observe about these three things is they were emblematic of our rebellion against God. The tablets of stone, which we broke, speak to our rebellion against God's law the the staff of Aaron speaks to our rebellion against God's appointed leadership and the jar of manna speaks to our rebellion against God's appointed provision for our lives And so inside of the ark, here are these three symbols of their rebellion and our rebellion, because just like them, we also rebel against God's law. Just like them, we also rebel against God's appointed leadership. And just like them, we also rebel against God's provision for our lives. But what I want you to see here is that God says something very specific. He says, I see inside of the ark all the emblems of your sin, but I want you to do something. I want you to cover it up. I want you to cover up your sin with something he calls the atonement cover. Your translation may say the mercy seat. The atonement cover was made of pure gold. It was beaten into a rectangular shape and placed on top of this box. And God says, I want you to cover it up cover up your rebellion against me, cover up your, uh, your, your rebellion against my law with this special lid that I'm going to call the mercy seat. And only once a year, the high priest will enter in here, sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animal on top of this mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of my people. Do you see the picture there? So that when God from heaven looks down upon us, he no longer sees mankind's rebellion against him. He does not see the law. He does not look and see the broken commandments or our rebellion against God's leadership or our rebellion against God's provision. Instead, God looks down and all God can see is the mercy seat. God looks down and all God can see is the blood. Friends, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the true mercy seat, when God looks down from heaven upon you, all God sees is the blood of his perfect one and only son. And God says in the book of Exodus right here, Something very special, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Exodus 25, God says this, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you. Where? From above the mercy seat. Notice God does not say, I'm going to speak with you in the the tablets of the law and see how good you are at keeping my law. No, God says, I will speak with you above the mercy seat. That's the place where I've chosen to meet with you. Friends, this is the only place of meeting between man and God, the place where God covered our sin. I emphasize this because sometimes we come up with our own ways to cover up our sin. Sometimes we come up with our own ways to blame shift for our sin or to point the finger in another direction or to make excuses or to come up with our own coverings, but yet God says all of those are like fig, tree, fig leaves in my sight. None of those things are going to cover your sin. The only thing that's ever going to cover your sin is the blood. Friends, if you want to have fellowship with God, it will only come in your life above the mercy seat in the place where you are willing to confess your sins, in the place where you are willing to get honest with God. There will be no place of self-righteousness here above the mercy seat. There will be no place of arrogance here. For God is opposed to the proud and only gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due time. This is good news. Now in the New Testament, we know looking backward that this all points to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 9 says it's an illustration. It's the Greek word for parable. This is all a picture, an allegory. And we look back and we see Jesus in the tabernacle everywhere. We remember his words in the Gospel of John. I am the true bread of life. I am the light of the world. My body is like the veil that was was torn, and I am the mercy seat. You might recall over top of the tabernacle, they placed skins, animal skins, badger skins, skins. And inside of that skin was the very presence of a holy God who one day would come down and take on human flesh, and the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God would dwell in a human being. John chapter 1 verse 14, and he would tabernacle amongst his people. You see, he's the true and greater tabernacle. And so the author to the book of Hebrews is saying this whole tent, this whole temple system was all pointing beyond itself. Don't you see? It's like a picture. Don't you see? It's like a shadow. James Rickershauser said this last week. It was like Plato's cave. All that they were seeing were the shadows on the wall. The substance of the reality has now come, though. And now something greater in God's redemptive work has arrived, which gives us not indirect, but direct access into the very throne room of God, making the whole temple system completely obsolete. This whole thing was just a picture of God's work through his one and only son, the true tabernacle. This is important because you remember the context of the book of Hebrews. The writer is writing to a group of second, third generation Christians who are very tempted because of the cultural marginalization of Christianity to go back to the Jewish system and avoid persecution. Let me just show up at the feasts. Let me stop acting like I'm not a Jew anymore. Let me just see if I can blend in so that people will stop marginalizing me. But the writer to the Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the temple system. There is nothing to go back to anymore. It was all a picture of something and now the substance of that reality has come and he Is greater. Go back to the temple if you will, but it will only be foolish. An illustration might help here. When my wife and I were dating, we spent some time geographically apart, and so we became pen pals, and we would write each other handwritten letters. Teenagers, once upon a time, there was no FaceTime, there was no email, it wasn't even texting. There was these thing called letters. You would like write them and then you put them in an envelope, a stamp would go on top. Then the Pony Express would come by my house, pick up the letter, and, you know, trot it off to, to Julie. Maybe I'm exaggerating slightly about that part. But we would write each other letters, and when her letters would arrive, I would pore over them, and, and I would read them. And I, would, I also remembered that I had this picture of her, and I would uh, look at the picture endearingly because, because I, I, would, I missed her. And so I would stare at the picture. Uh, but now, of course, we're married, and we, we see each other every day. And so, what would happen if, if when I came home from work tomorrow, uh, Julie found me in the fireplace room just staring endearingly at her picture? That would be kind of weird. Uh, Julie would say, hey, dummy, like, I'm right here. Like, what? why are you so obsessed with the picture? Like, the substance of the reality has come. You can put the picture aside, right? The writer to the Hebrews is saying, put the temple system aside. That was just the picture the substance of the reality, Jesus Christ has come. Amen. I emphasize this because you need to realize what this is teaching us. It means you have access to the very throne room of God. I emphasize this because I think sometimes as a pastor, sometimes people ask me to pray for them, and I will pray for you. i love to pray for people. Don't be shy about that. But, and don't take this the wrong way. But sometimes I wonder when people ask me to pray for them, if in their mind they're thinking of something that's not actually true. Like, sometimes people think, well, Dave, could you pray for this? Because, you know, you're like a pastor, and I think God would probably really listen to you if you prayed uh, about this situation. Friends, that's a huge misunderstanding. I will pray for you. That's kind of legalistic to think like that. That's temple tabernacle thinking. It's the belief that some people have more access to God than others, but The book of Hebrews is really clear when it teaches us that all who have faith in Jesus Christ have direct access to God the Father and we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. There's so much more I could say about the tabernacle and this subject if I had time to go in depth I have provided a pamphlet for you to take home. There should be enough for you guys to take one. Uh, Go through this together, maybe this week, maybe make this part of your devotional time. I encourage you to read all about the tabernacle. I know you'll be blessed by reading about that. So take one on your way out today. But for now, let me move on to movement two. We've seen the first and second sanctuary, but we also must take a look at the first and second sacrifice. Chapter 9 and verse 7, the author continues his argument by saying this, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, which he offered for himself, uh, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Now, what the author is referring to here is a Hebrew high holy day called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And this was a very important day. It It was like Israel's day in court once a year. And what was the verdict? Guilty. And what was the sentence? Death. And so one of my beloved professors, Jadaway Pentecost, used to say the day of atonement was simply the day when Israel's note of indebtedness fell due. The day when Israel's note of indebtedness fell due. That they were indebted to God because of their sin against him. And so the question on the Day of Atonement every single year was simply this, will God renew the note? You know how you have to have like a renewal, like maybe on your insurance policy or something like that? What would happen if your insurance company decided to drop your coverage? Just like that, the people of Israel wondered, is God gonna renew this note of indebtedness? Is God going to allow us to be atoned for one more year. And so unlike the rest of the feasts, whether you talk about Passover or the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Pentecost, which were full of celebration and rejoicing, this feast was actually not really so much of a feast. It was more of a fast. It was a somber time. It was a reflective time. It was a fearful time for the people of Israel as they all gathered around the tabernacle when the high priest would go in and they would wait to see if he would come out. Only the line of Aaron, only the high priest, only once a year, only with blood, and it would only be efficacious for the following year. And so the people would gather around and see if the high priest would be emerging from the tabernacle this year, and when the high priest would come back out of the tabernacle after having cleansed the atonement seat, then the people would burst into rejoicing and celebration because God had renewed the note of indebtedness for one more year until the next year. And the author to the Hebrews says that's the problem. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This was an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And here we see the main weakness of the earthly tabernacle system or the earthly temple system. The writer says the problem is it can't clear the conscience. You see that word conscience? You ever wonder what exactly does that mean? In the Bible, your conscience is just simply your internal consciousness of right and wrong. It's your awareness of right and wrong. It's like a spiritual organ inside of your invisible body. It's like an internal witness. And if you're in alignment with it, you feel innocent. And if you're not, you feel guilty. And so your conscience is an interesting and yet mysterious part of you that sometimes seems somewhat independent of you. Your conscience sometimes bothers you. Sometimes your conscience won't stop bothering you. Sometimes your conscience torments you you hear about people who commit crimes and then even though they didn't get caught they end up later on in their lives turning themselves in for the crime that they committed that they were never caught doing simply because they were tormented by their own conscience and so my conscience is that part of me that is confronted with the holiness of god and it's aware when there is sin in my life it remembers the sin in my life and it knows there's an obstacle it knows there's like an impediment it knows there's a veil. Commentator F.F. Bruce says it well. Quote, the really effective barrier, let me put this on the screen for you, the really effective barrier to a man or woman's free access to God is an inward and not a material one. It exists in the conscience. And so in the scriptures, the word that's used for sin against the conscience is defilement. We become contaminated by our sin, like an infection, like if someone was infected with a virus and they had to quarantine because they now had this disease, and the disease now caused relational barriers. And so when we sin, it disqualifies us from being rightly related to God. It brings great fear. It brings great alienation. God says six feet. Friends, this is our main problem. Our fundamental problem, the main problem in the whole universe, our, our biggest problem has nothing to do with our economy. Our biggest problem is not our political divisions. Our biggest problem is not even COVID-19. Our most fundamental problem is our infection of sin and its, uh, its ensuing alienation towards a holy God. John Piper said it this way, the great crisis of humanity is we have to have our guilt removed and God's wrath averted. The whole system says, men are guilty, God is holy, something's got to be done. Our consciences know this, and this is the fundamental human problem. So our consciences drive us crazy, don't they? Our consciences are always sending us messages, Messages because of our sin, you're worthless, you're junk, you're dirty, you're unclean, you're unlovable, you can never accomplish anything, just horrible. Our conscience just shouts at us, these horrible things, loud and condemning is the conscience. And so what do we do? What do you do? Well, there's a lot of different strategies out there. We all try in many different ways to feel okay about ourselves. Philanthropic efforts, humanitarian efforts, Uh, cleaning the environment, going green, doing good deeds. But what's really driving all of this? Could it be that something deep down inside of us longs to feel like we are okay? Could it be that maybe through so many ways, we are just trying to win favor with God? Allow me to share yet another illustration from the original movie, Rocky. Don't worry, I'm not going to play the song. I'm not going to put the robe back on. One time was enough embarrassment in my life for that, okay? You remember the premise of the movie Rocky. There's this underdog, no-name fighter. He's going up against the world champ, Apollo Creed. Right before the fight, he has a conversation with Adrian, uh, his wife, and he says this to her. You may recall the scene. All I want to do, he says, is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and the bell rings and I'm still standing and I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I want to know that I'm okay. I want to know that my life is okay. I want to know that my life counted for something, that I have some kind of significance about myself, and I think we all long for this. But do any of our earthly efforts actually work? The answer, according to the book of Hebrews, is no. There is only one thing that will make you feel okay about yourself. And the only way to solve this problem is to have your conscience cleansed, or the word he uses in verse 14 and verse 21, is purged. You need an expiation, a purgation of your conscience because of your sin. Now, who can do that or what can do that? What can really cleanse my conscience, right? Or as the old hymn writer used to ask, what can wash away my sin? And the writer of the Hebrews says it has to be the blood. The word blood is used in chapter 9 eight different times. Now, the Old Testament system had a lot of blood, but the weakness of that system is that the blood sacrifices would only help cleanse the conscience temporarily. They were short lived, they were not permanent. And so the writer says those were just external, those were just a symbol, a symbolic removal of your defilement. The blood of bulls and goats could never really actually take away your sin. It was inadequate. It was not long-lasting. And so in the Old Testament, the people of God would fluctuate between defilement and cleansing. Every year, defilement and cleansing, defilement and cleansing. And so here the writer to the Hebrews says, don't you see the Old Testament sacrificial system couldn't deal with your sin problem sufficiently? There has to be a better answer, and thank God there is. Look at verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Notice the word eternal there. It is used for a very specific purpose. It is to contrast the repeated animal sacrifices every single year on the Day of Atonement as contrasted with the once-for-all sacrifice made by Jesus Christ on Calvary. It also implies that our salvation is eternally secure. But these sacrifices, they had to continue to repeat them again and again and again you ever have certain chores in your house that you just have to keep doing over and over and over and you kind of get sick of them like mowing the lawn it keeps growing or like the dishes or like the laundry there's no end to certain chores this is how they felt about the old testament temple system they just they just were insufficient Uh, if they were sufficient why did they have to keep repeating it The author continues, verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Pause here and just notice the argument. It is the argument from the lesser to the greater. If the ashes of a heifer could make you, in some sense, outwardly clean, how much more can Christ? He was unblemished. You'll recall the Old Testament sacrifices had to be without defect. You'll recall that Christ was without blemish Morally speaking, he was perfect. There was never a time in his life where he did not perfectly love his father with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he did not perfectly love his neighbor as himself. He came to keep the entire law perfectly. He was without spot or blemish, the perfect spotless lamb. Therefore, the writer of the Hebrews says, how much more will his sacrifice cleanse your conscience from those acts that lead to death to serve the living God? How much more of how much more value is the offering of God's perfect, beloved Son, Jesus Christ, without fault, deity himself, the the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the Alpha and the Omega, the bright and morning star, given from the bosom of the Father, infinitely valuable. How much more will his sacrifice, instead of your own efforts, be effective to cleanse your conscience? How much more? The writer is asking a rhetorical question of us. Let me ask it to you as well, ladies and gentlemen. Of what is more benefit to you than the sacrifice of God's Son for you? Of what is more benefit to you than the sacrifice of God's Son for you? Tell me. I want to know. Isaac Watts, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. The author continues in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so here's the contrast in covenants repeated again for emphasis. You see, for 1,500 years, God had put his people under the first covenant, under the law. And for 1,500 years, they all failed. Even the best of them failed. Even Moses failed. Even David failed. Why? Because the law condemns the best of us, but grace saves the worst of us. And so he came to bring a new covenant. And while the law demanded righteousness from sinfully bankrupt men under the new covenant, God provides us righteousness as a gift Under the new covenant, God blesses us not because we are good. He blesses us because he is good. Under the new covenant, he does not not bless us because we are faithful. He blesses us because he is faithful. Under the law, under the old covenant, God promised, I will visit your sins to the third and fourth generation. Under the new covenant, God says, I will be merciful to your unrighteousness and I will remember your sins no more. That's good news. The writer continues, drop down with me for time's sake in verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. 25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise... Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. I just love that term. It's like a rock concert. Culmination of the ages. yeah. The culmination of the ages. To what? To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. Notice, unlike the animal sacrifices which occurred again and again, the sacrifice of Christ, he says, was a one-time event on Good Friday, once for all. When? At the culmination of the ages. Meaning Christ's sacrifice, this one-time event, would be the climax, would be the focal point of all of history, so that... After this, we would always look back at the culmination of the ages. And before this, they would always look forward to the culmination of the ages. And everything before Christ is B.C. And everything after Christ is A.D. And this is the culmination of the ages that all occurred in the passion of our Lord. And what did he do? Notice, he came to do away with sin. Let me just highlight that on the screen for you. To do away with sin. Very important word. If you're not listening, please listen to this. That's a very important legal word that the author is using here that means to annul. It means to cancel. It means to remove. It was a legal term that was used in relationship to a contract. To cancel a contract. There's a, very, there's a finality to this word. Think of it in terms of like marriage it's different than divorce. When we talk about a divorce, it means the contract or the covenant is dissolved, you get a divorce, but in some ways you still have a relationship with that person. You are their ex, they are your ex, it's ex-husband, ex-wife, there's still a relationship here. But friends, if your marriage is annulled, it is as if it never existed in the first place. It's like it never happened. Nobody walks around saying, oh, there's my annulled husband over there. Oh, that's my annulled wife over there. No, there's no connection now to that person whatsoever. Listen to me. This is what God is saying. Jesus came not simply to divorce you from your sin, he came rather to annul your relationship to your sin altogether. The Bible says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He's thrown them into the depth of the sea and will remember them no more. He came to do away with sin. So don't say, oh, those are my ex-sins over there. No, it's now that there's a complete separation between you and your sins forever. Jesus has annulled your relationship to your sin. Now the veil in the temple is torn forever. The sacrifice is complete. It's absolute. It's final. We all look back to a hill far away where there stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. This is really good news. Amen. Can I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, do you believe this? If not, what is keeping you from God? Is it your sense of guilt in your conscience? Is it, is it some feeling that you're dirty that makes you uneasy? Approaching the presence of God, friends, Jesus Christ is God's way for you. 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. God has provided the way. And the writer to the Hebrews says, there's only one way. It has to be through the blood. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Which brings us to movement three. We've seen the first and second sanctuary. We've seen the first and second sacrifice. And now we must also look at the first and second coming. At this point, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, I, I kind of understand that my relationship with sin has been severed. But let me just ask you a question. Since I still struggle with sin in my life, in my flesh, since I'm still tempted, how am I to understand this? How can I ever be really completely free from my sin? And this is why the author concludes the passage by saying this in verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The salvation that you long for has past, present, and future components to it. There's a sense in which we were saved in the past from our penalty of sin. That is our justification. There's a sense, let me put this on the screen for you, there's a sense in which we are saved in the presence, through, uh, in the present time from the power of sin. It's the penalty of sin, the power of sin. Thirdly, glorification will be saved from the presence of sin. This is salvation, the entire work of salvation, and one day it will be complete on the day that he returns. As we see back in the book of Hebrews, the author concludes his argument by making one last point. Take a look again at what he says here. You see, not only is there a first revelation and a second revelation, not only is there a first mediator and a second mediator, not only is there a first priesthood and a second priesthood, not only is there a first covenant and a second covenant, not only is there a first sanctuary and a second sanctuary, not only is there a first sacrifice and a second sacrifice, there is also a first coming and a second coming. And one day he will come the second time not to do away with sin, but to come back for you, his people. And he will make all things right. Hebrews 2.8, all things will be subjected underneath of his feet on that day. And his victory will be complete. And until then, brothers and sisters, please be patient, knowing that God is at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Take advantage of the time that we have now to share this glorious gospel with everyone around you who needs to hear this news and wait patiently until the day when sin will be no more, until that glorious day when the trumpet will sound for his coming and one day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one, bringing my Savior, Jesus. He is mine. And we will say, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified. Freely forever. And one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. You see, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, sometimes the first things, though they are good and beautiful are not always the best things. Sometimes the best things are yet to come. Can we pray as the worship team comes forward for our final song? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, when we think about the letter to the Hebrews, we do so with thanksgiving. For you have preserved this text so that we could look at it, read it, understand it in our hearing, not simply so that we can improve our theological knowledge, but so that we might understand how to have access into the very presence of God, so that we might be reminded of Christ, our greater temple, so that we might be reminded of his work on our behalf as the mercy seat. So that we might be reminded that there is a way for our consciences to be cleansed and purged and sins to be expiated and for your wrath to be propitiated and that the veil was torn and that we can know that you look down upon us and you do not see our rebellion against you, but instead through faith in Christ, all you see is the blood. Thank you for covering us. We look forward to your return where one day our victory over sin will be complete. But today, may we trust that work of reconciliation and peace has already been made by our great high priest, who was not just the priest, but also the offering, who at the culmination of the ages laid down his life for us. We say thank you, Lord. We worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen.